You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And before I begin, I do want to remind you that there is a website associated with this podcast at uh, wealthformula.com. You ought to make a visit there just to make sure that you're covering everything that you need. There's lots of resources there, including you know a number of downloads. There's a webinar on asset protection, which we are going to discuss today as well. And it's the place where you're going to sign up for some of our lists, such as our accredited investor list. If you're interested in participating in our Regulation D group for accredited investors, the Investor Club, go to wealthformula.com. So before we get begin with uh, today's show, I do want to also point out that in the last few weeks, we've done a lot of stuff with regard to uh, information within our community, uh, things that you've learned from other investors. Uh, you had the roundtable last week on Wealth Formula Banking. And the one thing I'll leave you with on that is that you know, a lot of this is about group learning and, you know, I can't uh, emphasize the value of those kinds of, you know, tribes uh, as much as I, I need to because I really feel like that's where the significant learning really occurs and where groups like Wealth Formula Network, which is our private community, uh, or other communities like, you know, Jim Pfeiffer's group or, you know, Ryan Steig's group, they've got the left field group. That, 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 that's the kind of things that I really encourage you to try to get involved with so that you can take it to the next level. Now, I can only speak to specifically to my group, Wealth Formula Network. If you're interested in learning more about that, go to wealthformularoadmap.com. It's really designed, uh, that site is designed to feature the course, but the course is only part of Wealth Formula Network. If you you know, you sign up for the course, you, you're also part of the community and we have a Facebook group and um, bi-weekly Zoom video calls. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there because I think we've really emphasized the value of the group learning and all of that uh, a lot over the last few weeks. And one thing I'll say is that once you realize how much uh, you don't know, you always feel like you're playing catch up. And uh, at least that's how I feel when it comes to personal finance. You know, it's funny because there's a lot of talk, you know, uh, about wealthy families implementing family offices uh, to help keep things straight. And I think theoretically that is a great solution. However, from what I've seen, family office structures often leave clients with a false sense of security. And people who are the authorities sometimes in the family offices, I'm always astounded at how little they know when it comes to things like taxes and and when it comes to, you know, asset protection or, or, you know, certainly on investment matters, it's uh, always kind of a uh, shock to me at how little they seem to actually know on those things. But the fact that they, you know, there is a family office and then there is a, some sort of aggregation of, of information and advisors in one place and that kind of thing it really gives people a false sense of security. So just be careful. I know a number of you are sort of leaning in that direction and it could quite possibly be the case that, you know, we may, we, we may start our own sort of family office services in the future that I, I would direct, but right now it is a, a slippery slope and you don't want that false sense of security because no matter what your wealth, your level of wealth, you know, you ultimately need to be the CEO 
of your own finances because no one else cares as much about your money and your legacy. And that's just a fact. And it's not saying that people don't care and then they're careless or something. But listen, you're the one who's thinking about it all the time, or at least if you're like me, you are kind of drives me crazy. But yeah, I do think about these things all the time. And what that means for you and for me is that we need to be educated on personal finance issues one way or another. Uh, if you're going to be successful in this space, regardless, uh, you may have the best advisors in the world, but if you're not working with them and helping them to understand your situation and your goals, then you're not going to get very far. And so for most high paid uh, professionals, that means uh, not only surrounding yourself with you know competent CPAs, lawyers, investment advisors, and such. It also means being active uh, in designing strategies um, and making sure they actually get implemented. And it sounds so basic, but it you know it, it's actually pretty challenging. You know, I have one of the best CPAs in the world. You know who he is, but I am far from passive in my interactions with him. I probably drive him sometimes a little crazy because I'm constantly challenging him, constantly asking him questions and and um, you know asking him to come up with new ideas and providing him with uh, my uh, new ideas. Uh, after all, again, I know my you know finances better than he does, and every time. You know, I acquire a new asset or make um, make a new investment. I have to be the one who understands how it fits into my portfolio because the again, you don't rely, you don't, and you should not rely on your CPA or your uh, you know your attorneys to tell you what is a good investment. Okay, you just you it, why would they know? That's not what they do. They're experts in you know, the conceptual stuff, but they're not going to, you know, they don't necessarily know who the best uh, people are to invest with and all that stuff. That's stuff that you got to figure out yourself. So I've seen that mistake uh, 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 before as well. So again, when I acquire a new asset, make a new investment, I have to be the one who understands how it fits into my portfolio and it can be exhausting but at least, you know, I can be confident that um, the decisions I make are the best for me. So, you know, and I will say that that's why so many people, I think, uh, you tell me, find Wealth Formula Podcast to be a useful resource because this is a platform for me to learn about things and share them with you in real time. I've gotten some really good feedback from you guys you know, I've had some people say some nice things. I've got a couple of things that called me the only podcast that uh, actually helped them make money, which is uh, which is a big compliment. But what I will say uh, on um, that I can be sure about about this show and what we're doing here is that nothing, nothing we talk about is theoretical, right? Nothing is the stuff that we're talking about. I mean, I am very involved with all this stuff personally. It's the information I use every day in my own uh, financial affairs. You know, obviously, uh, I don't know everything. Uh, there's people who know more than me, but I, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, and so, you know, I'm happy to share some of that. And if it's useful to you, then fantastic. But because of that, because this is not a theoretical platform. This is a platform for me to kind of work things out with you and uh, figure out what makes sense. You often hear from my advisors, you know, people who are actually doing the work 
that I need to to have done on my behalf. You know, after all, again, what better way for me to communicate these concepts to you than literally having you listen uh, to the conversations that I have with my uh, own advisors? Well, that's what this week's episode is going to be uh, about. Now, you've heard my asset protection, Doug Lodmel. He is my asset protection attorney. He does uh, everything on my asset protection stuff. And he's also a good friend, a guy I trust very much. And I highly encourage you to listen to this show. You may think, uh, and you you may know everything you need to know about asset protection. But, you know, after I did this interview with Doug, I was like, wow, that was probably the best, you know, best asset protection interview that I've ever done and certainly ever heard. And so if you are interested in making sure that you have a comprehensive but understandable source for what you need to know about asset protection, uh, you're in for a a good one when we come back after these messages with Doug Lodmel. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is familiar to uh, at least to most of the people who have been part of the Wealth Formula community for a long time. Doug Lodmel, uh, who is my friend and my asset protection attorney. Doug, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks, Buck. Great to be here. Now we're talking offline about how, you know, some of these things that we talk about, we've talked about before, and it's important concepts, though. So there is a little bit of a redundancy in, in what we do. and But I think it's important, particularly for the concepts that I feel like sometimes get neglected, like mm-hmm. asset protection, right? And that's what you do. So right. I want to, let's start very basic here. How do you define asset protection? Yeah, that's that's really a great question. That is a great place to start, but yeah. you know, what is asset protection? Um, the broadest, most generic answer is anything that would protect your assets from loss, a creditor. So, um, you know, there's a lot of investment advisors that say, yeah, I really focus on protecting your assets. What they mean is protecting your principal from loss by not investing in bad stuff. Right. Right. So that's what they mean. Insurance companies, insurance salespeople, they talk about protecting your assets and they might mean protecting your assets from taxes. So we sell you insurance policy that's going to pay the taxes. When I say asset protection, what I mean is in a legal sense Mm -hmm. is how do we protect your assets from a creditor and a creditor is anybody who might use the legal system to try to get assets from your side of the table to their side of the table. Yeah. So, so so will you start when you start, you know, I think anybody who I'm guessing you have this question, you know, all the time, right. Which is at what point, you know, do I need to do anything special and, you know, and, 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 and what are those things? I mean, I imagine, you know, what you're going to tell somebody who's just out of training or professional school and who's got no assets, but right. all of a sudden is starting to make, you know, make a decent salary, all of a sudden is making four or $500,000 a year right. is different from what you tell somebody who's, you know, accumulated, um, you know, a net worth of a million, five million, ten million. So, how do you how do you go about that when you when you have a uh, you know a new person who you're talking to? Invariably, you've gotten that question a million times. What do I need? Right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the answer is, is if, if you don't have anything yet, let's say you just got out of professional school, you're, you know, you're in debt, even maybe you have some, some school debt, you don't really need asset protection yet per se, because you don't have any assets to protect. The minute you do have an asset to protect, that's when you start thinking about asset protection. So for some people that asset is, oh, I've got $50,000 of equity in my first home all of a sudden. I'd like to talk to you. So that's great. We look at that and 50,000 may not be enough to spend money on a legal structure to protect it, but um, 250,000 maybe. Um, so what I do first is I go through their assets. So when it, what a call looks like an initial call with me is let's talk about your assets. You know, do you own any real estate? Do you own any investment properties? Do you, you know, where's your income come from? Do you have any employees? So what I'm looking for is both assets and risk points. I want to understand the assets. How are they structured? If you've bought, let's say someone has three rental properties that they bought. And then they switched over and started doing Western wealth deals. And then they have five syndications. Well, those are different types of assets. So the three rental properties that they own directly, we would treat differently than the syndications Mm -hmm. because the syndications are already securitized, so to speak. In other words, they're only a limited partner or an LLC member in the Western wealth deal. Whereas on the real estate, they own it. And so we have to do something about that. So step one is just lay it all out on the table so that I can understand it. Uh, Frankly, it helps them a lot of times because they haven't really thought about it all sitting in front of them. They're just kind of doing it and making it up as they go. Um, And then from there, we look at what's already protected. So we say, okay, great. Well, you do have $250,000 of equity in your home but you live in a state where you have $200,000 worth of homestead protection or $500,000 worth of homestead protection or an unlimited homestead protection. So that's already protected. And that's a huge thing for someone to understand uh, when they go from feeling like, Oh, I I wonder if this is at risk to, Oh, it's actually not at risk. Just understanding that. Yeah. And Um, so there are layers of this too, right? I mean, you know, we talk about asset protection. First of all, I guess one of the questions is, who are you protecting this from? I know. I mean, what, right. what, what's what's this asset protection? I mean, who's after your assets? Right, right. So um, the answer is uh, nobody and everybody. <laughs> right, that's right. Um, and it kind of goes like that. It goes from nobody's after my assets to everybody's after my assets. So I just had a call with a guy um, before you and I got on and he owns a smoke shop where they sell vaping stuff and going for years and years and years, never a problem. Didn't ever think about it. Just, just going along, building assets, you know, kind of using LLCs sometimes, not other times, no coherence, no real plan to the deal. All of a sudden he gets a lawsuit a battery exploded in uh, somebody's pocket and now all of a sudden he's on the hook um, and he realized, oh, that business didn't even have an LLC around it. It, yeah. it was absolutely totally exposed. And now he's, he's, you know, going from no fear, didn't ever think about it to, I never, I need to absolutely go into crisis mode around this. So our legal system is the most litigious in the world. There's no legal system that's built like ours, not nowhere in the world. The, the number one problem with our legal system is that we do not create a financial risk for someone to sue someone else. Every other developed legal system in the world creates a financial risk. And what that risk is, is the, the risk that you'll have to pay the legal fees of the winner. 
So this is called a loser pay system. So if you sue somebody in England or India or Canada or Australia or any of the other developed countries in the world, basically anywhere in Europe, and you lose, you got to pay the other guy's legal bills because you dragged him through the mud. You, you made him spend two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in legal bills, and then you lost. Well, you got to make him whole. Right. And that creates, that's why 99% of the world's lawsuits are here. We don't do that. If you sue somebody, they spend a half a million dollars to defeat you and you get, you get sent away. You don't have to pay them back the half a million dollars. There's no penalty. Yeah. And so that fundamental part of our legal system has made it very, very easy for lawyers to put billboards all over town saying, Hey, feel bad, injured, tired at work, sick, you know, coughing from a cruise injured on a cruise. I mean, it, it's just, you know, rampant yeah. Phoenix, Arizona, you know, Scottsdale, Arizona, where I live, it's probably eight out of 10 billboards or are injury attorneys. Nice. Nice. Are, are you on any? No, I'm just kidding. no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So, so, you know, we, again, we just sort of layers of protection. One is non-structural and that would be like, you know, insurance, right? I mean, insurance, yeah. um, yeah. equity stripping, what are the, some of the simple things that you don't think that actually are creating yeah. asset protection for you? So number one is insurance. I mean, most people, when they think I'm protected, they, they, what they mean is, is I have insurance and I feel like that would cover me. So I'm actually a fan of insurance. Um, I, I, I like it because it's easy to handle the straightforward stuff. It'll, it will cover you for the straightforward stuff. Car accidents. It's great for accidents related to your home, you know, property liability, things that are easy to insure like vehicles and homes, um, insurance usually covers. So I think that is your first line of defense. And in the beginning, that really is probably your only form of asset protection. You know, you don't need a lot of other stuff. Um, not having a lot of equity in certain things also protects them. So if you have a $4 million home that you owe $3.5 million on, you only have $500,000 at risk in that home. You don't right. have $4 million at risk because you owe 3.5. Right. So, so that limits the real risk that's there. A lot of people will use debt to make sure that pretty much everything that's out there in the world is leveraged as highly as possible. Then the question becomes, well, how do you protect the other stuff? How do you protect the, the cash that you've now pulled out of all this stuff? Um, and that's where you have to get into some other strategy. Some states insurance is an option, not, not insurance as in liability insurance, but insurance as in life insurance. There are some states that protect an unlimited amount of your life insurance, whole life cash value. For example, um, I work with one company who called me and said, yeah, you know, we pretty much do asset protection using whole life insurance, but we can only do it in the states that have unlimited protection for whole life. They want to partner with me for the states where they don't have unlimited protection. So it's very state driven, Buck. California is yeah. very different than Texas, which is different than Florida, which is different than New York. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is it, it reminds me of a, some conversations we've had within our private network. And, yeah. um, you know, there's always this tension for people when they have um, homes and whether, you know, there's the, the psychological part versus what makes sense in terms of paying down and owning your home outright. You know, say you have a 
a house that's worth, you know, $5 million, like you said, and or you got a million dollars of equity in there. Is it smart to keep paying down that principal? Well, in many ways, the, the, the situation is complicated. It's a complicated question. So um, psychologically, you may feel better that you don't owe a lot of money on it. But the bigger, uh, the more equity you have in that house, you know, the bigger target you are for creditors, the bigger target you are for people suing you. And in addition to that, the more likely you are that if you get into some financial trouble that a, that a bank would actually foreclose on you instead of trying to figure, figure out, you know, how to, how to work things out. So it's, it's interesting that you bring up uh, life insurance because one of the ways that we've been talking about strategically in our group is, you know, we do do a lot of this, uh, what we call wealth formula banking. It's a whole life insurance stuff. But the concept of taking that principle that you might have used to, you know, continue to pay down your, your home and actually right. put it into an insurance account. And of course, that that's relevant, again, based on the states that you're in, but that's a, a concept that we've talked about. So, you know, when you get into some of the legal structures, I mean, first, you know, I guess the, the, the first thing that people talk about and think about are creating uh, entities, right? Um, I want to talk to you about, you know, what really is the protection that you get from legal entities uh, mm -hmm. LLCs. And obviously, you know, it's going to be determined in part by what state your LLC is and all that. You want to talk a little bit about how does an LLC actually protect you and what does it protect you against? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question because, you know, there's this kind of like, oh yeah, get an LLC, you're protected. And understanding how and the limits of that protection are important. So the reason that an LLC is seen as a protective entity is because the remedy of a creditor for a member of the LLC, a member being you, you own the LLC, you're a member, is a charging order. So um, if you have a corporation and you have shares of stock, that's personal property. So I want you to think about Apple stock or Google stock or Facebook stock. If you own that stock, you get a stock certificate. If you have a creditor that creditor gets a judgment against you. They go into court and they go, hey, he's got a stock certificate. That's personal property. I want that to satisfy this judgment. There is no restriction on that stock certificate. It can be freely traded between anybody and it can be grabbed by a creditor. Now I want you to think about a country club. A country club is a private membership organization. You cannot um, bully your way into a country club. You cannot force your way in. You have to be invited in and you have to meet the qualifications, right? And so, and you can be kicked out at any time if you don't follow the rules or if you are, depending on what their documents say, for no reason at all. So you can't just see somebody's country club membership and say, oh, well, you owe me the money because the country club itself is going to say, you're not a member. This guy is a member. We let him in. We didn't let you in. And, right. and this membership is valueless to you. So now, how does that apply to an LLC? Well, an LLC does not have shares of ownership. It actually have membership interests. And just like a country club, those membership interests can be restricted. And in the state drafting of the LLC statute, 
and the limited partnership statute, by the way, they're very similar. They're both charging order protection entities. The statute in the state that drafts the LLC actually says that the membership interest can be limited and can be restricted so that a creditor can never become a member of the LLC. And then when you draft the operating agreement, you're gonna make sure that you're referencing that and you're making it clear that a creditor can never be a member of the LLC. So now you have a creditor, right? Creditor comes in and um, they say, hey, I see that Buck's got this LLC membership interest that's worth a million dollars and we want that to satisfy this judgment. Now it's just like the country club, we can say, well, that membership interest is not available to satisfy the judgment. The legal, um, the, the statute in the state actually doesn't allow you to foreclose on the judgment and get to the underlying asset. It only allows you to, to have a charge against that member's interest. And that is what a charging order is. It's a, it's a charge against any distributions you might get in the future, but it is not a right to foreclose. Or, or a right to seize the membership interest. That's why corporations are not great asset protection vehicles because you can just have the creditor seize the corporate shares. Whereas limited liability companies and limited partnerships are very good asset protection entities because creditor cannot seize the shares and get control of the company or foreclose on it. So when you say charging orders, can you define that a little bit? Yeah, so it's a char it's an order of charge against that membership's interest, that member's interest. So it's like a lien almost. Right. Um it's it's like saying, "Hey, if that LLC makes a distribution to this guy, then the person holding the charging order would be entitled to the distribution." But it doesn't force the LLC to make the distribution. At least not under normal right. circumstances. Right. So right. I want to caveat all this, right? All this is subject to some judge saying, yeah, well, normally that's all true. But in this case, we're not going to follow those rules. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's that's all kind of that's where your planning comes in and in, in, yeah. in your paperwork and all that. Some states have better charging orders than others. Correct. So what is it? What is that? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. How does how does so, one state versus the other you know? So, yeah. So so the LLC was basically invented um in the late seventies in the eighties, it started getting adopted by the various States. Um, it was, it was an attempt to actually make a better entity because prior to LLCs, all we had was corporations and most people had to use an S election to avoid the double taxation. And so you ended up with S corporations pretty much everywhere. S corporations are very restrictive. One, they're still corporations and creditors can still seize the shares. Two, their restrictions on ownership are very onerous. So you can't own an S corporation unless you're a person or a special type of trust. So they're not great as asset protection vehicles because of those two things. So some states actually said, well, let's make up something better. Let's create something brand new. And so Wyoming was the first state to draft a statute and says, well, let's make a company that's really based on a limited partnership because limited partnerships do have these, all these good mm -hmm. things about them, mm -hmm. but let's call it a limited liability company because we want to make it a company, not a partnership. And that's where the LLC got invented. And the States that were serious about making these asset protection vehicles said in the statute that the exclusive remedy for a creditor against a limited liability company is a charging order. That's the key language. Exclusive remedy is a charging order. Other States, like California <laughs> have adopted the statute, but said that they don't have the exclusive remedy language. 
they say that a charging order is the is the is the normal remedy or any other such remedy as the judge deems is appropriate. In other words, they left discretion for the judge to say, well, charging order normally would be, but in this case, we're not going to use a charging order. We're going to foreclose on the LLC. And so some states are better than others. As you can imagine, the states that are better are the states that are better on all the other corporate things like Wyoming, Arizona, Nevada, Delaware, Alaska, um, the, the Western states that are kind of the, you know, live free or die, get off my land type of states. Mm -hmm. Um, California is the exception in the West, right? California is completely different country than the rest of the Western states. Um, Utah is a good state. So, so we, when we set up, um, entities, if it's possible, we like to use one of the good states. Now here's the trick. And a lot of people don't understand this. Um, if you live in California and you have property in California and you create a Wyoming LLC to hold the California property thinking, Oh, well, Wyoming has exclusive remedies charging order. So let's use that. And then you come to California and you put your rental properties in a Wyoming LLC. You have done two things. You have domesticated your LLC from Wyoming to California. That has subjected that LLC to all the rules in California. And when a California judge is going to get that case, what law are they going to apply to that Wyoming LLC? California law. So your Wyoming LLC holding a California asset is just like a California LLC. So it's, there's no real benefit of using a Wyoming LLC to hold a California real estate. So the next, uh, the next, you know, especially if you live in California or something like that is this, concept where um you start using trusts uh or you know other ownership other than yourself the concept of sort of you know controlling but but not owning right um and so presumably you can think of that in a very basic level as okay well you know maybe you don't own it maybe somebody else owns it but the um, maybe the the next uh, question maybe for you to clarify for us is, you know, the the value of a trust in the sense that my understanding, of course, I'm not an attorney, but just I talk to you guys all the time, yeah. uh, is that that the law really recognizes two types of, uh, you know, types of ownership, you know, you, you're an individual or you're, you know, or there's a trust, right? I mean, there's like, you can have a trust who's a, not an individual, but, you know, right. uh, and so is that basically, you know, is, can you talk about that recognition from the law at the level of individual right. and trust? Yeah. So, um, so a trust is a really interesting form of ownership because no one owns a trust. There's no owner to a trust. There's no shareholder. I get the question all the time. Well, who's going to be the shareholder of the trust? There is none. There's no shareholder. So um, let's say that I, you're going to take my son to the park with you. Mm -hmm. And I say, hey, Buck, thanks for taking my son. Here's 20 bucks. Get him ice cream or sandwich or lunch or whatever you want with the 20 bucks. But if he sees his friend there, Joey, um, he owes Joey 10 bucks. Don't give Joey the 10 bucks out of this 20 bucks. This 20 bucks, we're going to give Joey 10 bucks from some other money, but this $20 is just for lunch, right? We just created a trust. I'm the settler of the trust. You're the trustee of the trust. And my son is the beneficiary of the trust. And those restrictions I put in there saying, Hey, don't give Joey the 10 bucks that Aslan owes him. 
That's called a spendthrift provision. That's saying, hey, and here's some conditions upon which you should manage this money. Um, so I could say, hey, buy him lunch. And if he eats lunch, get him ice cream, but don't buy him candy no matter what. Those are trust provisions, which kind of put conditions around how the money can be spent. So there's, there's, there's no, you know, there's an asset of the trust that's called the trust estate or the trust asset, but there's no owner of the trust itself. The trust is just an agreement between us as parties, right? Me, the settler, you're the trustee for the benefit of my son. So that's an incredibly powerful concept when it comes to asset protection, because there's nothing for anybody to seize in a trust. They can't go, Hey, this trust has shares. Let me get to the shares. The trust is just an agreement between parties. And when we do an asset protection trust, specifically one designed for asset protection, we choose a jurisdiction which has statutorily laid out, here's all the things that we think you are allowed to do in a trust. And here's all the ways you can protect from creditors. And they lay it out and they make it incredibly, incredibly difficult for a creditor to reach those assets, even through the legal system. So in this scenario now, I mean, I'm just trying to sort of inch people into understanding, you know, conceptually the way some of these things can be used. So before we talked about this first layer of protection and insurance, and then you get to the LLC and the individual, now you're, you're, you're hoping that the charging orders can protect you. Now you might have a situation where you have an LLC where the owner or the member rather is a trust, but you know, you might be the manager. So in that's a situation where you kind of have your cake and eat it too, right? I mean, you can control everything, but you don't own it. Right. Right. And that's really where we get into the concept of, of a middle entity, which is like a holding company. Right. So we'll put a middle entity between. So let's say all your LLCs are down here. You own different pieces of real estate, some businesses and maybe a, a boat or an airplane. And you have all these LLCs and you say, wow, that's a lot of things to manage. Let's just create one holding company that owns all these various LLCs. And then also, hey, let's put the cash and marketable securities and the cryptocurrency in the holding company because I don't want that in my name because that's at risk if it stays in my name. So the holding company is kind of where you're getting to this manager concept. You can be the manager of the holding company or the general partner, depending on what type of holding company we use. And then the trust can be the owner. So the asset protection trust can own the holding company. You can manage the holding company and all the assets are in the holding company, either directly if they're safe assets like securities or crypto or indirectly if they're risky assets like real estate through LLCs. And that's really the structure. So it's LLC owned by holding company owned by trust controlled by you. And you do, you're right. You do kind of get your cake and eat it too, because you don't technically own all this stuff directly, although you're still the beneficial owner because in an asset protection trust, you're going to be the beneficiary. So the trust is set up for your benefit. So if you need to use the money, there's no restriction. You're allowed to use the money. So, yeah. And and I think that's an important concept because I have, especially when it comes to estate planning and that kind of thing, when I have conversations with people, they're always like, well, I don't want to give up all my money. You know, I'm not, I'm not ready to give up all, you're not giving up all your money. Right, you're just, right. you know, you're still using it. It's, uh, it's just a different way of thinking about it. 
Um, so, uh, you know, when you get to that, though, Doug, and I think this is an important um, time to sort of talk about, uh, you know, one of the things I, I've always, uh, I, I like about your style is that you're more of a practical sort of street fighter type instead yeah. of being highly, you know, academic. And, uh, you know, you, sometimes you talk to guys who just don't even really understand what they're saying. And it sounds like you're in, in, in you know, taking some sort of a class in a law school and, <laughs> And, and, and that's really not what this is about, right? So right. we have this beautiful structure set up and, you know, now you might be involving offshore versus onshore and all those things, which you might want to talk about, but then, um, and, and, and maybe you can talk about that in the context of, okay, now you've got a great big lawsuit. Are you 100% bulletproof protected or maybe not? So that's a great question because the concept of somehow 100% bulletproof um, isn't of itself a, a question. I mean, are you ever 100% bulletproof from anything, even if you're in a bulletproof tank? Well, no, not if an A-10 flies over, right? Yeah. So, so there's no such thing as 100% bulletproof. Um, and that whole concept that somehow you can do something that just makes you invulnerable is, is really a misnomer. What asset protection, if done right, really does is it gives you leverage. It, mm -hmm. it rebalances the playing field that is totally imbalanced right now in favor of plaintiffs and their attorneys and puts it back in favor of you because you get to choose the venue. You get to choose the, the field in which you're going to have the fight. So um, there's no, there's no you know, absolutes in all this, but I can tell you if you look at the track record, of how asset protection has worked when it's done right. And it's done timely. It's incredibly effective. I mean, I would say 99 point something percent effective if done right. It, it's just extremely effective because once you get to the offshore, there's you've, you've moved the game so far away from anything that the lawyers here even understand much less the plaintiffs um, that you've really, you've really taken away all the moves that they might be able to make. So I do like offshore. I really like to have it in the back pocket. I'm not a huge fan of going offshore all at once right away. And there's a lot of attorneys out there and, and this is kind of the academic, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, offshore is the best. Let's go to the cook islands. Let's set up a trust. That's the best. Let's open your accounts offshore. Let's get all your money there. Let's leverage everything now and get it all offshore. Okay, that's all true. Those things are, are true, but you've also exposed yourself to the highest level of compliance with the IRS, the most level of costs with the offshore providers, the, the, the highest cost banking system, um, and you've, you've, you've removed yourself completely from the control element. And so from a practical standpoint, it's not practical for most people. It's really not. They just won't do it. So you're right, my, my style is very, very practical what makes sense and what, what is logical to do? You know, do I, do I need to bubble wrap my kids when I put them in a car, you know, uh, or do I just want to have a child seat? I mean, what, what, you know, is it practical to bubble wrap your kid? Probably not. Is it practical to have airbags in your car? Yeah, probably practical. So, um, but I can say with confidence, if done right, it's incredibly effective. I mean, incredibly effective and, and, 
Um, I certainly rely on it every day for my clients. Yeah. And so t- talk about, so the bridge trust, talk yeah. about a bridge trust. Cause that's kind of what you're known for. Yeah. So the offshore asset protection trust is the gold standard when it comes to actually defending against a lawsuit. If you're in the exact circumstance where an offshore trust is the best, which is not every case, there are cases where you do not want to be offshore, where offshore would be a detriment to you. Um, that there's been plenty of cases where client has called me with their criminal attorney on the phone and said, Doug, I told my criminal attorney, I have an offshore trust and he's flipping out. Can you explain what I have? And what I ended up explaining is no, you actually have the ability to have an offshore trust, but what you have is a bridge trust. And you can hear the sigh of relief on the part of the criminal attorney who's like, oh, thank God, I think I'm going to keep this guy out of prison. Um, because the optics of having an offshore trust was absolutely going to kill him. So offshore trust, if it's the right thing tactically to do in the right moment, that's where you would want to be. But if it's not, you don't want to be there. So what a bridge trust is, is it's an offshore trust. It's drafted as an offshore trust. It's registered in an offshore jurisdiction. But for the purposes of compliance, it's actually a domestic trust. That's why I call it a bridge trust. We actually cross, we construct a bridge back to the U.S. We meet the two-part test set forth in 7701A30E of the Internal Revenue Code, which is called a court test and a control test. We make a court in the U.S. have primary supervision over the trust, and we make a person in the U.S. have primary control over the trust. That person is typically the client themselves as a U.S. person. That meets the two-part test. That eliminates the need for a foreign trust filing requirement for the 3520 to have a foreign trustee in control of everything. It lowers the cost. It simplifies the maintenance. It allows the client to be in direct control of their assets, but it still gives us this ability. If the proverbial shit hits the fan in the future to just cross back over the bridge and it's a foreign trust. And now we have the strongest type of trust in the world. So it's a practical, it's a very practical tool. I'm curious, uh, just out of curiosity, what, why would the foreign trust have really created a serious problem? Because it was a criminal thing and having um, anything offshore from an optic standpoint. So optics are just the way things look Mm -hmm. and the court um, very much is looking at the optics when they're judging whether somebody appears to have done criminal stuff. So this, in this case, this guy was someone white collar. We're talking about SEC and Department of Justice. And so they're looking at his whole picture. And from his criminal attorney's perspective, had he had an offshore trust with a Swiss bank account with $10 million sitting in it, he would have looked like the bad guy, yeah, right? Yeah. Because it just looks bad. And so he didn't. He had all his money sitting here. He had a bridge trust, which has this ability to be offshore, but we never triggered it. And, and the criminal attorney was like, for God's sake, don't trigger this trust. Unless this guy's willing to go to jail. It's, it's interesting, the paradox in terms of um, what you're trying to do with optics at, at, the, at the level of insurance from asset protection, insurance sometimes, uh, certainly in my experience, invites litigation, right? Uh, if you, if you, you know, if somebody's trying to sue you and they think, well, you know, MedMal, MedMal is a good example of that, right? Um, you know, you have frivolous lawsuits all the time because a lot of, a lot of, you know, people think that, well, you know, they've got, they've got, you know, insurance and then they're going to ultimately settle this thing. 
So yeah. sometimes it seems like insurance actually invites the um, litigation, whereas on the polar opposite, now still asset protection, but what you're doing with um, these structures, ultimately, uh, I think my sense is that really what the, the, the great value is in these higher level things, when you got somebody trying to sue you, is a deterrent because you have somebody who might want to sue you, but it's going to be really hard to get your assets. So then they have to do sort of a, a benefit analysis right. uh, for themselves, whether or not it makes you know makes sense to sue you. Isn't isn't that a big part of of asset protection? It is a big part. I mean, nobody's going around suing homeless people with no assets. They're just not. They're never defendants in lawsuits. Why? Because there's nothing to get. No attorney's going to take that case. Well, you know, you look at a successful entrepreneur or a doctor and you go, well, that's a good target until you find out they're not. And once you find out they're not, that attorney and their and that plaintiff have to reassess the case. Because remember, the way that the plaintiff system everything's greatest strength is also their greatest weakness, right? That's kind of the law of, of the universe, right? You look at your own greatest strength is also your own greatest weakness because that's, there's so much focus in that area. So the greatest strength of our legal system from a plaintiff's attorney perspective is this ability to offer their services at no charge to these plaintiffs. So you don't have to pay me anything. Just sign up with me. I'll do all the yeah. rest and we'll go get you some money. That's their greatest strength. They lobbied hard to make that happen. Before 1964, they weren't even allowed to be plaintiff contingent fee attorneys. It was, it was not allowed. It was not in our legal system. The founding fathers specifically excluded that. They did not want attorneys working for a cut of the action. Well, the attorneys successfully lobbied, and in 1964, Maine was the last state to change the law that allowed attorneys to accept contingent fees, right? So they worked hard for that. And that's what allows them to advertise and take every case that comes across their desk. Yep. Sign it up, sign it up, sign yep. it up, sign it up. That's what the billboards are for, right? That's what the billboards are for, right? <laughs> they get these calls coming in. Let's get these things signed up and let's start suing. Right. But it's also their greatest weakness because they're not getting paid unless they win. And not even just if they win, if they collect. Right. So they're not getting paid until they collect. Well, you show that attorney, good luck collecting against my client. You're not going to collect. Why are you doing all this free work? All of a sudden their math changes and now they have to reassess. So their, their strength has now turned into their weakness. Um, and you're right. That is a huge component of this. And we use it all the time. Um, I, I write letters to play my, my clients, defense counsel, explaining the plan, not in detail. So where the other side would understand you know, where to look, but explaining what it is. And then that letter finds its way across the table to the plaintiff's attorney um, from my client's defense attorney and says, hey, you know, we really should be talking about settlement here because I don't think you understand, even if you were to go to trial, get a judgment and win, there's really nothing here beyond the insurance. And, and all of a sudden, insurance sounds good enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. want to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the other kind of, you know, stuff that we talk about sometimes, which is real, not it sort of seems related to asset protection, but it kind of isn't, is estate planning. And I, I know you're focused on asset protection, but talk a little bit, uh, you know, doing asset protection doesn't really provide estate planning, right? And, and what's the difference? Because there's a lot of confusion out there. 
Yeah. So um, estate planning is planning for your death and what happens at your death. Um, it also almost always involves the estate tax planning, meaning how do we make sure that we don't pay any extra estate taxes if we can, if we can minimize those. Um, and estate planning is most commonly done through something called a revocable living trust. What's very good about a revocable living trust is that when the, because the trust doesn't die, if you create a revocable living trust and you fund your assets into it, when you die, doesn't really disrupt the trust. The trust says, oh, well, you used to be the trustee, but now you're dead. And we're just going to go down to number two trustee who you've listed. And that might be your wife or your children or whoever. And so the trust immediately has direct control of the assets. You don't go through probate, which is the legal process of, of submitting the will to the court and having it read and public publicly um, advertised, you know, and, and here's, here's the estate. And does anybody want to make a claim against the estate? Now's your chance. There's this whole process. In California, it's really kind of horrendous because the lawyers were successful there to lobby for statutory fees to go through probate, which start at 3% yeah. of your state, just for the lawyers. So that was nice of them to uh, make that yeah. law for themselves. Um, so, so it avoids that. Yeah. But because the trust is revocable, there's no asset protection. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was getting at, right? Because yeah. it's a tricky thing. Like people try to, you know, people. And, and you know, I'm, people are trying to get legal advice from me all the time, which I don't want to give. Right. Like, no. so, it's, so it's good for me to, you know, have you on here. Um, but you know, uh, there's, there's always this question, do I need an LLC? Do I need, you know, do I need, uh, or is a living trust? Okay. But they're, they're really dealing with separate things, right? I mean, living trust, well, yeah. it's smart to do a living trust, but maybe your living trust ought to own an LLC or something like that so that you provide both asset protection and estate planning. Right. Yeah. So, so estate planning is important. You got to do it. Asset protection you may need to do if you have assets and if you care about protecting them, if you're going to do them both, you're going to want to do the asset protection as the primary thing. And the reason I say that is that if you do the estate planning as the primary thing, your estate planning attorney is going to have you put all these assets into this trust. Yep. And then you come to me, your asset protection attorney, and I'm going to have you take all those assets out of that trust and put them into a different place. Yeah. And so, so if you do the estate planning first, you, you're just going to double up on your work. So what I encourage people to do is do the asset protection because you're going to fund it completely differently if you're protecting assets because they're not going to go into a revocable living trust. They're going to go into the LLCs. They're going to go into the holding company or they're going to go into the asset protection trust, the bridge trust. Right. They're going to go one of those three places. They're not going to go into the revocable trust. The revocable trust is then can get done. And then what we do is we just pour the bridge trust and all the assets from the holding company into the revocable trust at your death. So one of the things that uh, people ought to know is is Doug actually has a network of estate planning attorneys um, available too. So I, I think this is a very important concept. These it, these are very important concepts and very important, to, especially people in our wealth formula community, because you know you're you're for the most part uh, your typical wealth formula person does have assets, does have in many cases higher risk because you you might be physicians or other kinds of healthcare professionals or you're a business owner. I mean, these are things that you've got to uh, deal with. It's it, it sort of, you know, it, it's it's like insurance in the sense that 
okay, you're setting something up just in case, but boy, you don't want to get into that just in case uh, scenario. And then like the guy at the vaping place all of a sudden realizes, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I, I haven't done I'm this exposed. right. Uh, once you set these things up, it's really not that hard. And so it's a matter of like just being on the right course from day one. And that's what Doug is really good at doing. So Doug, uh, how do we get a, get in touch with you? So you can email me directly anytime. If you're one of your listeners, Buck, just um, my email is my name, Doug at Lodmel.com, L-O-D-M-E-L-L.com. Um, just say, I, I heard your podcast with Buck. I'd love to talk. Um, we can schedule a time and we can actually sit down. It, 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 we do it on the phone. It takes about 30 minutes. We'll talk about everything. And I can tell you, you know, if you need asset protection and what you need, if you just want information and you just kind of like to, to, to dig in more yourself, um, I'd recommend you go to the website, lodmel.com. There's a bunch of good videos, um, lots of helpful information, lots of articles. Um, I really try to educate as much as possible. Um, and then you can certainly call if you just want to call and make an appointment with me. My phone number is 602-230-2014. Happy to talk with anybody who's listening to this and uh, help you figure it out. By the way, Lodmel is spelled L O D. M-E-L-L. So if you're looking up Doug, make sure you you spell that right. And the other thing I'll point out is there is a, a webinar that Doug did for us a while back, an asset protection that's available at, at uh, wellformula.com. And if you click on the you know contact um, button after listening to that, uh, you, you can also contact Doug that way as well. Doug, I want to thank you again for you know being on Wealth Formula Podcast. It's always a pleasure and, and uh, looking forward to seeing you in October at our uh, next event. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being there. Thanks, Buck. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it again. Doug is my practicing asset protection attorney. I cannot uh, recommend him more. What I like about Doug, uh, as opposed to some others that I've worked with before, and you can know that I have worked with others if you've been listening to the show in the past, but I've evolved to, to really working exclusively with Doug on this space, mostly because he is highly practical, right? Um, again, theoretical just doesn't work in the real financial world where things can uh, crumble quickly and you could run into problems. And asset protection is something that you don't realize you need until you need it. And uh, you want to make sure that you're ready for a street fight, not for a debate uh, in a classroom, because that's really where the dollars really end up being spent. And so so make sure that you understand you're comfortable with and stress test it. We've uh, you know, I think that's a great exercise to, you know, whether it's with your asset protection or estate planning or whatever, stress test it, see what happens. What if, you know, what if you got sued today? What if you died tomorrow? Whatever. Have you stress tested and seen what the holes are in your planning? Anyway, requires a little bit of time and that kind of thing, but it'll certainly make you sleep better at night. Anyway, that is it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.